Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. The labeling dilemma for people of African descent residing in the Americas has been described by journalist Lawrence Hill in this way. We run in circles trying to do the impossible and find a term that will work. Negro, colored, black, Afro-American, African-American. To that end, the term people of color seems to be the latest installment of a labeling continuum that is in constant flux. The term can certainly be regarded as an upgrade from other terms with which we have experimented to date. For instance, non-white, as if white is the standard. Or the term minorities, which has fallen out of favor in the past decade, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the term is actually a demographic inaccuracy. But the term people of color is not without its own challenges. One overriding concern with this term is that it diminishes the separate histories and stories of individual groups within that broad category since all people of color have not been impacted in the same way and have not faced common obstacles. The particular realities and experiences of each group are suddenly merged under this umbrella. So today we will explore the various concerns with this particular chapter of this labeling practice and some predictions for what the next workable term on the horizon might be. I bring you two outstanding guests to accomplish this. We're joined by Alan King, a distinguished colleague of mine at Littler in our Austin office where he is a shareholder. Alan has a dual expertise in employment law and labor economics and statistics. And I am proud to say that Alan was named as the best management side labor lawyer in Austin for 2017. We are also joined by award-winning historian, humanities scholar, author, and international lecturer, Carol C.R. Gibbs. C.R., as he's known, wrote, researched, and narrated Sketches in Color, a 13-part companion series to the acclaimed PBS series, The Civil War. C.R. is also the founder of the African History and Culture Lecture Series, whose scholars have been providing free presentations at libraries, churches, and other locations in the Washington, Baltimore area for the past 28 years. Alan and CR, thank you for joining me for this conversation. CR, let's start with you. How did we get here to people of color? Well, initially the the term, and and I have a, a, there's a great definition, at least that that I think it is in in the second article of the Constitution of the uh, New England Anti-Slavery Society. When they're explaining their Object, the objects of the society will be to endeavor by all means sanctioned by law, humanity, and religion to effect the abolition of slavery in the United States, to improve the character and condition of the free people of color, 
to reform and correct public opinion in relation to their rights and obtain for them equal civil and political rights and privileges with the whites. So when we look at this, then we're looking at the earliest descriptor of free people of color is that we are talking about, at least in this regard and at this time, we're talking about black folk who are not enslaved. So CR, in light of what you've just shared with us, can you comment on whether people of color is simply a synonym for black? It was initially at its beginnings, which go back roughly 200 years, even before the, the, the quote I gave you from 1851, it was a, a synonym. It was to describe a specific group of people within a larger group of black people. But that is not the case today, right? That's true. We began to see a change in the 1960s. Dr. King, I believe, used a term citizens of color, and in that he was looking at a larger, more ecumenical group of people. He was talking about the group of oppressed people, be they African-American, Native American, Asian-American, and so forth. Well, one obvious challenge with the people of color label is that it seems to intermittently cover people from African, non-white Latino, Native American, Asian, and Pacific Islander descent. So there's been some considerable debate about the usefulness of the lumping of all groups who only share their non-whiteness. Talk to us about some of the other challenges with the term as you see it. I noticed that you also brought up the term oppressed. What we have to understand is that people of color is an imperfect term born out of a situation of slavery and oppression. It is still a, a collective term. It doesn't take into account even the necessary divisions and diversity within the African community that existed at the time it was in its greatest use. So it brings that baggage from the 18th century and 17th century into the 21st century. So 200 years ago, when we think about, for instance, the act to prohibit the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the United States, the 1807 act so entitled, where the term persons of color was used, how is people of color any different from that very similar term 200 years ago? It is not fundamentally different. Where we get into a slight difference, and remember that the, the, the line is sort of flexible. It's, it's a, a selectively permeable membrane because you could be enslaved and under certain good circumstances migrate across and into person, free persons of color. And so that was one way to look at it. So that's why when we look at the numbers over time, the numbers change. The public perception changes as well, also depending upon where you are and what sorts of people of color are around you. Allied with this, we have terms that, that come out of oppression that are used more in Mexico and in Spain. Probably the best example is uh, gente de razón, which is people of reason. So now, in, in order to work your way into that, it, it is assumed that if you were white, you were already a person of reason. However, anyone, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyone outside 
gentile de raison, is not necessarily a, a person of reason and therefore open to further exploitation and enslavement. And that may very well highlight the shortcomings of these collective terms by which so much is swept underneath either one. And again, it is impossible, if you have any kind of, of historical awareness, to be totally comfortable with either term, because they, they, they march out of a white supremacist construct, both of them. What a fascinating component of this conversation that you, that you bring to it with uh, that piece of history. Now, I can hear our listeners out there, CR, saying, Okay, so what's the difference between someone who was colored from 100 years ago to people of color? First of all, we have to establish what context we're using it in. Are we using it in its original context, or are we using it in terms of citizens of color? And then if we're using it in a more modern sense, then we are talking about something that is relatively new. We're talking about an appellation that is relatively new in terms of the American dialogue. But because then, you can appreciate their confusion. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, what time does your internal clock say? And, I mean, when we think about the great uh, African-American historian, John Henry Clark, he said that history is, is a clock by which people tell what time of day it is. So there's going to be confusion in determining w exactly what kind of time we're referring to. And to me, that points out one of the weaknesses of the term. There are going to be people who hear people of color, and they're going to think about historical usages of it, uh, uh, free people of color. Well, that implies still not it doesn't imply equality. It leaves out the majority of black people who were enslaved. So it brings its own baggage and shortcomings. So that, okay, if we're not using the term in its historical context and we're using it in its modern context, doesn't it, as you sagely pointed out in, in the beginning, tend to lump all of people who have different experiences into one basket? And to me, that again is, and fails to recognize the uniqueness in each group of people of color, if you will, who wish not to have their experiences lumped together, homogenized, or corporately extruded. Fascinating. CR, from an inclusion perspective, what do you say to people of color who are not the targeted or intended members of this category, if you will? For instance, darkly complected Caucasian people from other backgrounds, or Jewish or Italian people, for instance, who may have felt excluded as a result of their histories or experiences. And because of those histories and experiences, feel like they should indeed be regarded as a person of color. It is a coat that many of the folks you just named would take on and off whenever it's convenient. However, some of us that are naturally kissed by the sun can't take the coat off and on depending <laughs> upon its convenience. Remember, yes. in the 60s, we talked about the use of affirmative action. And some of our brothers and sisters of a, how shall we say, of a less darker hue, tried to be on both sides and could not, couldn't function in that full conversation because they knew they were only going to exploit the term benefit and then get off of it when it was no longer convenient. 
it's interesting having this conversation that has a little bit of an us versus them feel to it because there are some people of African descent who feel some level of ownership about the term and resent that people who should not be included derive some unearned benefits as a result. Is that a fair concern? Oh, I'm, absolutely. When we talk again about people who are using something for their own narrow and temporary convenience, then of course, you know, those folks who have been legally termed people of color or free people of color, I believe, have a right to feel that, oh, wait a minute, once again, our history is being ripped off by people who see a temporary advantage and when whatever perceived advantage they have disappears like smoke, uh, then they're going to throw it back and guess who it will revert back to. And they're absolutely right. When we look at even the use of the term people of color, it has, again, it's just meant black folk. I mean, I, there, there's a wonderful statement in the, uh, I think it's the American Missionary, and it talks about by the people of, resolved by the people of color in the state of Mississippi in convention assembled, we earnestly entreat our countrymen throughout the union to form a national colonization association with branches in every county and state in the union for the purpose of effecting a peaceable separation of the blacks from the whites and concentrating our numbers as a body in certain states or territories within this union. That we're talking about a, a term of art or a term of use that, and this is 1878. So we've gone, you know, 30 years in terms of definitions, but the ultimate, yeah. the root definition is still the same. We are talking about black folk. Now, again, I recognize that when the change began roughly in the 60s, Dr. King and others were looking for a more ecumenical way to bring in other people who had felt the sting of oppression and brutality and discrimination. But we cannot afford in the rush to inclusion to adopt amnesia as a practical policy <laughs> for history and as a basis to, oh, you can come in. By the way, the price of admission is that the rest of you have to forget the historical roots of these terms. That is a price, I believe, that is too high to pay. Moreover, this new fascination with this term seems to have a couple of evil handmaidens coming alongside of it. I deal with people who not only are looking at this term or any term that they can use as long as they don't have to use black or African. And I also see, for example, there's a, there are people on the Internet and in the community pushing the idea that we were always here. Now, we were always here means that we were here when the Native Americans got here. We were here when the Europeans got here. So we really don't have to deal with, with the African thing because we were always here. So that, that's one of, the, that's one of the, the, the evil handmaidens of these people who are desperately searching. And again, I've had young people, uh, I will go to my grave remembering a discussion in a charter school in the district from young people who said they didn't want to be called African because they'd never heard about anything good coming from Africa. Interestingly enough, these children were not crazy about even being called 
black. So I can understand why in the minds of people who still are desperately searching for a term filled with less opprobrium than African or black, I can sort of fit myself in the coat of people of color. What a fascinating historical perspective. Alan, I want to bring you into the conversation at this point, because I am certain that you have heard the rumblings associated with this kind of possessiveness about which we speak in the HR and organizational context. Talk to us. Well, it arises in a few different ways. Uh, for example, many companies uh, in the private sector are focused on increasing the diversity of their workforce and often rely on the phrase people of color as a shorthand for the groups they intend to include in the initiatives they undertake to enhance the diversity of their organizations. And that also translates into the statistical analyses that often are undertaken in support of those efforts. And what I notice is that there's often a disconnect, or maybe perhaps to rephrase that and say there's often too strong a connection between the shorthand that works as a verbal description, you might say, of these efforts, and the way in which the statistical analyses are conducted that are done in support of these initiatives. Uh, and that sounds a bit abstract, I'm sure, but what I mean to say is that it's, it's one thing to talk about people of color in a generic reference that is meant to encompass a range of uh, racial and ethnic groups, and it's another to actually apply that term literally when systematically gathering information and analyzing that information with respect to diversity. So there are ways in which the term people of color is actually a useful term for organizations or industries when they are trying to collect and analyze data on employee demographics. Well, yes, I think, again, of, you know, this may not be the most appropriate comparison, but uh, you are speaking to a lawyer. And so <laughs> there's been a trend in the legal profession to limit the number of named partners. And instead of having a laundry list of names when you place a telephone call to a law firm, Right. You'll hear now the abbreviated names of one or two partners. And I think using the phrase people of color in that same way to devise a shorthand for diversity initiatives, I think, is very useful and helpful and much better than every time you make reference to diversity initiatives, you're systematically mentioning every racial and ethnic group that could be impacted by those efforts. That would be ridiculous. But then to literally translate that same abbreviation to the way you do your analytical work could be fraught with issues that are not obvious until you start thinking about how to break down that larger designation. Of course. So when an industry or an organization is categorizing workplace data, like compensation or promotions or voluntary diversity initiatives, for instance. By using the term people of color, Alan, 
Talk to us about some of the challenges here. Well, my concerns when that is the principal way in which employees are grouped is that it's too easy to mask differences that exist within the groups that are encompassed by the phrase people of color and therefore reach mistaken conclusions about the state of things within the company. For example, suppose we're talking about a company in which Asians do exceptionally well and let's say Hispanics do not. On average, Hispanics and Asians can be grouped together and reach the conclusion that people of color are doing as well as any other group, perhaps the majority of whites, for example. But that would really misstate the relative status of those two groups and mask the fact that Hispanics may be lagging others. So the company could mistakenly give itself a very favorable report card for its efforts when a more granular view would indicate that, in fact, there are differences between Hispanics and others within the group people of color and between Hispanics and the majority. Good point. Are there other challenges, Alan, that concern you or opportunities with this term for organizations who are trying to track their diversity efforts? Well, let me speak to the first part of the question, and then we'll come back to the other. Because in part, one of our concerns as employers and lawyers and those who are interested in promoting equality within the nation is that there are going to be cultural differences among the groups that constitute people of color. And I just want to mention a conversation I had just yesterday, which I find very interesting because I was speaking to an Hispanic colleague and her daughter usually came to the office to have lunch with her boyfriend and the three of them would sit together very often. And I was asking about the boyfriend and this colleague pointed out to me that the boyfriend comes from a very traditional Mexican family. And I was unfamiliar with what that entailed. And I asked, and she told me, well, it means that the family emphasizes going out and earning money to support the family as soon as one is economically productive. And it also, in this case, would mean foregoing college. And uh-huh. it struck me that there are other ethnic groups where that is not the predominant ethic. And one of the things one might want to do in trying to enhance the role of all people of color is to pay attention to these differences and perhaps engage in community outreach that would perhaps dispel these cultural disadvantages in the education sphere, at least, and engage people in thinking about non-traditional ways of viewing the world, and perhaps the ultimate result would be increasing the relative education of Hispanics in comparison to other people of color and the majority group. Yeah, what a perfect example. Right, it strikes me that by homogenizing people of color, it's very easy to miss these kinds of differences between groups, which would call, and this brings us back to your original question, different efforts to essentially remediate or to reduce differences that otherwise would exist between groups. And so 
I think, again, homogenizing and grouping everyone under the umbrella of people of color could miss these opportunities. So we spoke about the first part of the question with respect right. to the challenges. Are there opportunities associated with this term? Well, I think that's true as well. You know, I did some research before undertaking this conversation, and <laughs> you know, I actually looked at the Wikipedia entry for people of color, and one of the points that was made was that there was an attempt in coining this phrase or applying it in its most recent incarnations, let's say, to highlight what might be considered the solidarity among people of color uh, and yeah. identifying the commonalities in as, as well as the differences that I previously emphasized. You know, there are undertakings such as affinity groups and things of that nature that could be undertaken by employers that would recognize the commonalities that exist in addition right. to the differences. So there, there could be a unifying component of this is what you're saying. Yes, and I really think that is one of the motivations for the most recent popularization of the term. That's a great perspective. Now, Alan, as you know, there are some HR folks and in-house counsel out there who are listening, perhaps a little nervously, when they think about some of the liability or the risks associated with this term when an organization expresses diversity efforts in terms of people of color. Talk to us about that. Well, it raises a few different questions, I would say, because the potential legal liability differs very significantly depending upon the particular program or efforts under consideration. So I would say, for example, that employers have much more latitude in terms of outreach efforts, recruitment efforts, training efforts, and things like that, that ultimately redound to the benefit of all people of color, but run afoul of the law to a great degree when those efforts are expressed in terms of specific goals and targets. So, for example, targeting the hiring of people of color, let's say, as being 40% of all new hires could potentially be problematic for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, the law doesn't look very kindly on express percentages as targets for fear that it would motivate employers to make decisions that are entirely based upon an employer's racial or ethnic background. Yes. Uh, that's not good. Secondly, the use of the phrase people of color in formulating these goals suggests to potentially various managers and those who are decision makers that those subgroups among people of color are fungible so that I don't have to worry, for example, about the paucity of Asians that I'm hiring because I'm hiring so many African-Americans in the sense that I can get to 40% in very different ways, and each of them is equally acceptable. But as a matter of law, 
an employer could not defend, for example, in my hypothetical, a suit brought by Asians who claim they're being underemployed by pointing to the African-Americans who are treated even more favorably than one would expect. That one group's favorable treatment can't offset any disadvantages suffered by another member of the people of color rubric. The other problem to be aware of is this notion of missing the claims that potentially could be asserted by any one subgroup by focusing on the overall treatment of people of color. Great, great points. So comment, if you will, on some of the hurdles that are associated with when an organization lumps people of color into one group for various statistical analyses. So as if promoting an Asian is the same as promoting a person of African descent, particularly in a sector or a field where the beneficiary of the people of color designation is disproportionately overrepresented anyway. That's very interesting because the, let me think about this as a statistician, if you don't mind, because statisticians are accustomed to distinguishing between differences that arise within groups versus between groups. So that it's often useful in studying groups of individuals to ask how homogeneous is one group relative to another and are the differences between them much greater than the differences that exist within each group. And the society is such that there are a number of dimensions, I would say, where groups differ significantly in various ways in terms of their residency, in terms of their education, in terms of their fluency with language, in terms of their family backgrounds, so that it is not surprising if it turns out that in the workplace, various groups of individuals in terms of race and ethnicity are prevalent in one segment of the company and not another. And this could arise because, as I mentioned, geographical differences, linguistic differences, educational differences, and cultural differences. If that's the case, one could easily mistake proportional representation by, quote, people of color, close quote, for very different representations when that same problem or issue is analyzed by specific racial and ethnic groups. So that what, again, I would point to are the possibility of what, again, statisticians refer to as false negatives. In other words, people who do a statistical analysis based on the group people of color may too easily give themselves a favorable report card when a more nuanced comparison would show that perhaps that favorable report card is warranted with respect to one group, but not necessarily uniformly across all groups. Perfectly put. Spoken like a true attorney and statistician. Oh, thanks. CR, let's turn back to you for a moment. I want our listeners to appreciate some international context for this label. What are countries like Canada or France or South American or European nations using these days? Talk to us about the concept of color 
in other countries. Well, in Canada, for example, again, we are confronted with a multitude of labels and people are looking at uh, their, their black folk or people of visible African descent who are uncomfortable with the term Afro-Canadian. They prefer black. There's a group that claim Native American, European, and African descent called METI or METIS, M-E-T-I-S. So when, I know when I speak in Canada, I'm mindful that I risk turning off a, a, a small portion of the audience depending upon which descriptors I'm using. But they are struggling with this, as they are. Um, we just got back from traveling, and we were in Colombia in November, this past November. And we are reminded that there are people who actually went through Central America as well. And in every country almost, it seems as though, again, the terms black and African are the ones to be avoided. And anything that can give you something else, something, no matter how slight, no, no matter how, how false, it makes some folks feel better. And even in... Uh, in Colombia, there are conscious folk who don't mind doing, uh, uh, expressing their African heritage, but they do it in a different way. So you have gaily clad women, uh, market women, of, again, phenotypically African descent, but they prefer to use the term palinquera. Well, that's great if you know that palinquera, a woman from a palinque, and a palinque is an African maroon community in the hills around Cartagena. Now, if you don't know that, okay, well, you might be a little confused, but it is at least a way of saving and at the same time conferring a, a knowledge that these folk have not lost their African minds in, their, in its entirety. They have not lost it. They're coming to you, and they're dressed in such a way, whereas the average uninformed tourists, oh, look at these gaily clad black uh, market women, but they're sending a message about their history. And that's a way to do it as well. So we find wherever African people are, in South America, in Brazil, in, for that matter, in Asia, folk are struggling with the appropriate labels. And the, the problem is, is all of these labels are perishable. And all of them only, it, it's like putting your hands in front of your face while leaving space to let the sunlight through. Ultimately, you're going to have to deal with the sunlight. And the sunlight is, you are still are irrefutably, unapologetically African people. You are black folk that, that, that you do not wish to accept it, that you wish to claim invented histories of arrival. That shows how far we are away from terms and descriptions of ourselves consistent with our history and culture. Right. Now, now CR, you bring up something interesting with respect to uh, blacks in Canada when you say as you said a moment ago, that some prefer black. We have listeners out there right here in the United States who still struggle with that and want to know what's wrong with the designation black? Is it okay to refer to people as black as opposed to African-American or a person of color? We still find, as I told you with the children, you know, in the, the, they, they're struggling with self-definition at an early age, they're struggling with it. But again, they will grudgingly accept. They'll accept black before they'll accept African-American. And we get a sense of this when we look, we can go back to the doll tests done in the late 1940s, Dr. Kenneth Clark and uh, his wife, 
uh, Mamie Phipps Clark, and, and we see that for many of these children, just as I was told, and not that many years ago, that they'd never seen anything good about Africa. And so fundamentally, they set up an oppositional relationship with themselves about the use of the term African-American. But at the same time, they recognize that in many parts of the country and in many parts of the community, black can be a term of derision. And so they continue to struggle with these terms, but one is more acceptable than the other. And again, this is a deep hole, and we're going to be climbing out of it. A hundred years ago, you could find black folk who would accept the term Afric-Americans. I, I know in my collection, I had a wonderful term, afric Americans. Uh, but at the same time, there were organizations that preferred to Afro-Americans, but there were members of the black community in Canada and the United States that were uncomfortable with the use of the term African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so they sought to name their churches something else. And we're still struggling with what label is acceptable to me internally, what label will provide me maximum comfort and acceptance within the larger European-American construct and group. So if there are such struggles that are going on within the communities, CR, you can appreciate the confusion for people belonging to the dominant groups who struggle with the practical solution at not offending people. So plainly speaking, how do you ask the question in terms of what people prefer? This is a question that I am constantly asked in, in trainings uh, pertaining to diversity and, and inclusion. What is appropriate? How do you ask if somebody prefers to be labeled black or called African-American because there is a concern, of course, for offending people of color? Do you have a practical solution for that? You can listen. Remember, the teachers used to tell us as children, that's why the, the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth so you can listen twice as much as you can talk. <laughs> so first off is you listen to how people reference themselves. You get a sense of knowing them. The Washington Post magazine, which comes out on Sundays, recently did a piece on uh, how people from India are often perceived as black, which many apparently are uncomfortable with, and how you just can't, you can't always, I mean, you know, pay attention to names, pay attention to how people refer to themselves. And then you, I'm sorry, there's no way to dive into this pool and not get wet. <laughs> there, there is no easy way out. If it was, we would have thought about it. But there are things that you can do to, in, to put the odds in your favor. And again, that is the first thing is don't make empty assumptions and then carefully listen to people. And if you are in a work situation, you can yeah. get to know people and see how they, here we go, refer to themselves. Yeah. And if you have a sense of this, then you won't make the obvious mistake or painful mistakes of stepping into a conference room and immediately turning off 99% of the people in the room. But it does require a little bit more preparation, but it's something that we can do. It's not that much different, Cindy Ann, than doing research on any subject before you speak about it in public. It's not unbeatable. 
It just requires a little bit more preparation. And, is and it, that, it, mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just going to ask you, CR, is it ever appropriate to just go there? Oh, well, I think sometimes if you're, <laughs> and forgive me, and I don't mean to offend any of our listeners, but let's just say that if you are in a, a black history observance, it may be okay to use the term black and or, and, or African-American and use them interchangeably. I mean, there, there's some situations where the context will give mm-hmm. you a sense of how to proceed. There was a time in the Spanish colonies in the southwestern part of the United States where you could buy whiteness so that you could, uh, what is it, in one of my lectures I talk about a man named Pedro Hizar who lived in, in what is now San Antonio, Texas. Well, in the earlier censuses under the uh, Mexican colonial period, he is listed as black. But then all of a sudden, and Carl Degler called this the mulatto escape hatch, he walked out of this because he had brought a sedulous or gracias al sacar, whatever the term of art may have been 400 years ago, and he ceased to be black. So his way out of it was to buy whiteness and therefore move into becoming a person of reason. It's kind of like the issue that was satirized in the 1930s and 40s by the Afro-American writer Schuller, who wrote a play called Black No More. And Schuller, in writing this play, gave us one of the first instances of an evil, mad black scientist. And he invented a machine called, and here's the name of the machine, the Erase Olator. And so you you know you went in black at one end of the machine and you came out white at the other end of the machine, and and that sort of personifies all of this tumult over you know what to be called you know and how to proceed. For so for many people ultimately they wish to at least nominally they want to blend into the larger society and many of them are are willing to pay almost any price to do that. This is one of the more, in my view, honest and and certainly satirical looks at the struggles of black people to be accepted. And I wonder, I often ask myself today, if a 21st century black mad scientist came up with a similar device, how many uh, phenotypically African people would use it? How amazing. We have defined some of the most glaring ideological, sociological, anthropological, political, and legal shortcomings with the people of color label. CR, is it time to move the needle on this term? And if so, why? Or if not, why not? Are we there yet? Uh, Okay, I'll answer the last question first. No, we're not there yet. (laughs) But I think it's it's useful, and again, I may be biased as a historian, to understand that the terms people of reason and people of color resulted from, for example, Spain and France particularly, the, the conquest and colonization of numerous racial and tribal groups in the New World. And so they would use this as a, a turnstile by which if you went through in one direction, you risk losing everything. But if you went through the turnstile in the other direction, you could join a numerically 
insignificant number, but who were perceived because they used exclusionary terms like people of reason and people of color, and you could join them because they had the power. Now, when you understand the history of this, the corrosive history of these kind of collective terms, the fact that you seem to want to revise it and make it broader in the 60s does not take away the history. It, it, it's it's yes. tantamount to the folks who say, well, I'm going to redefine the N-word. Okay, well, how's that working for you? <laughs> it, it, is, it isn't. It isn't. Yes. So we have to understand that. And then people will have to fight. This is a battle that must be fought inside the hearts and minds of everyone who struggles with it. But in the workplace, in the workplace, again, listen, pay attention, yes. look for self-definition, and watch what you do. Don't go into an office or, or a celebration. I mean, if you're in a Juneteenth celebration, and probably the, the odds are you can see black or African-American. Right. That's okay. But, you know, outside of that, listen and wait to see how people and, – and, and if you are perceptive enough, you will learn to spot those anxious moments when people are looking at you and can't figure out how they should describe you, and you can put them at ease. It only takes a, a microsecond to do. So, Alan, is it time to move the needle on this term? Well, I would say that the courts already have moved the needle. And certainly in terms of doing analyses, for example, if one were to take an internal view of the company's workforce, to be commensurate with the way the issue would be analyzed by the courts, I think analyzing a company's own data in solely in terms of people of color really misses the boat. That the courts, I would say, have moved past that. And as I mentioned, the lawsuits typically one has to defend are brought on behalf of very specific racial or ethnic groups. And it's very rare. And I'm not sure it would be a viable lawsuit for someone to sue on behalf of people of color. Therefore, if an employer is interested in analyzing its own statistics to find out its vulnerability to similar types of lawsuits, those analyses should be done, in my opinion, much more granularly than is implied by the term people of color. If one is interested in diversity as an issue that needs to be advanced within the company, then I think for that purpose, continuing to speak in terms of people of color may be a very inclusive way of raising that issue so long as it doesn't get applied literally when analyzing the company's risks in terms of litigation or in terms of the specific programs that are considered as ways of promoting diversity and assessing the success of those programs. Right. Now, Alan, you bring up the courts. I have to ask you this chicken and egg theory question. Does the language in our legislation or jurisprudence influence the sociological trends with respect to labeling, or is it the other way around? I think it's the other way around, actually. And the 
law is very slow to change, obviously. And Title VII of the Civil Rights Act enumerates specific groups, not in terms of Hispanics or African-Americans, let's say, but they enumerate protected categories by race, ethnicity, and color as well. But those categories haven't changed since the inception of the statute. And I think they'd be very slow to change, despite the fact that in public discourse, the way in which we refer to these groups may have changed. And so in the court, I think an employer should assume they will be held to the standards enumerated in the statutes, despite the fact that the sociological references may have changed. And just as an historical matter, as I mentioned, I did some research and I looked at the case law and tried to determine the earliest case I could find when the phrase people of color was used. And I actually found a case from 1813 in which Chief Justice John Marshall decided a case called Queen versus Hepburn, in which yes. he uses the phrase people of color. And that's the first time I found it appearing in any reported case. But I would say that usage has been superseded in the law by the statutes that have since been enacted. And I would not think that it takes us very far in understanding or defending against our legal liabilities. Very interesting. CR, as a practical matter, how do ethnic labels become adopted universally? I mean, how does a label revolution, if you will, get accomplished? There are some labels that people find great to have. It's a kind of social shorthand. And then there are those. So there are some positive labels, but then there are negative labels. There have been positive labels for whites. There are negative labels, even for whites. Those some of us are unfamiliar with, redneck or peckerwood or cracker, but those are terms or poor white trash that, that defined large swaths of European Americans for generations. We find, however, that for the most disparaging terms, we can do one thing, and, and that's whether the, it's the N-word or whether it's terms like Dago or Spick, which you don't find really used to, to any great degree today. And that is for the people that they're directed to, first and foremost, not to use the terms themselves. And then yeah. you'll find over time that if you don't refer to yourself in that way, other people will begin to seldom, less, and then never refer to you in that way. So that when many children today are unfamiliar with the term chink, again, or spick, or dago, but we know that those terms less than a century ago were uh, terms used to describe various people from, be it Southern Europe or Mexico or so forth. I am a firm believer that if you stop using these terms yourself, that the affected group stop using these terms, that you stop attempting to apply some patina of, uh, oh, it doesn't mean the same thing if I say it. I think that you ultimately kill the beast that continues to roam the language of our land. Yes, and CR, to be fair, unlike those terms, which are very unsavory and not acceptable, the term people of color doesn't have the same baggage. 
So might it go away or might it actually not go away because it isn't unacceptable? Again, if you know the history, if you understand that the colonizers established the, these terms to take advantage of the yearnings of, of people to want to fit into the society and that they established these terms as methods of control, then you, you have a lot to deal with in terms of then adopting and supposedly redefining a term that comes out of the horror and bloodshed of colonialism. I'm personally not comfortable with that, but I think I know that there are people are. Ultimately, these negative terms are also a mirror into the status of people of color in our society today. People of color isn't going anywhere. These terms are not. But I think, again, if you really want to see some change, stand up to who you are historically. Ultimately, people will have to, in a black-white dichotomy, People will have to come, I think, to closer terms with the term black. And will you be able to say, and or, or African, will you be able to be comfortable with, again, being unapologetically African and unashamedly black? Do you see us going back from the term people of color to the term black? I notice on my social barometer, whenever times become difficult, as I dare say they, they may be now, when you have a president that praises Andrew Jackson, who was also known as an Indian killer, who when there was a death on the plantation, his enslaved people at the Hermitage saying, one day your head will hang lower than mine. I think that people will, will run for cover and look at the least offensive terms. This is why... And in the short term, the search for acceptable racial terms, people of color, no, that's not going anywhere. That's going to be here, amplified by people who do not wish to point too large and long a finger at their obvious difficulties and differences. Alan, I have often wondered about what the next generation label would be. If you are an advocate for graduating from the term people of color, what would the hallmark of a good identity label be? Well, you know, I would really like to say, and I understand the difficulties with this, but the label people would be absolutely perfect from many perspectives. You know, it would certainly be nice if we could use one all-encompassing term that applied to all of us. And I recognize we may be a long way from that day, but certainly that ought to be the goal, in my view. Short of that, it strikes me that celebrating diversity really does mean unpacking the term people of color and giving voice to all of the different groups that that phrase includes and celebrating the differences among groups that are encompassed by that phrase. And I'm afraid that continuing to use the phrase people of color may focus attention away from what in some ways really amounts to true diversity, that is in appreciating the values that people of different racial and ethnic groups bring to our country and the world in favor of a shorthand that tends to 
ignore these significant differences that are so important. Wonderfully put. So fast forward a decade, it's 2027. CR, what is your prediction for the people of color label? We'll still be struggling because, again, until we are fully acclimated on what I consider to be valid historical terms of acceptance, first within ourselves, the, the greatest battle is to accept who we are and our history internally first. But we have education systems that constantly ignore us or degrade us or deny us so that I'm meeting young people who don't know uh, about Malcolm or they've heard something about uh, Dr. King and they know that he was a dreamer, but they know nothing else. So uh, based on my experience and looking at what I see of the children thinking that they're going to cross that finish line in 10 or 20 years, I don't see it. Alan and CR, it looks like we have a date in 2027. <laughs> Alan King, my distinguished colleague from our Littler office in Austin, where he is a shareholder, and award-winning historian, humanities scholar, author, and international lecturer, Carol C.R. Gibbs. Thank you both for engaging in this captivating dialogue. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcast at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.